we just reached the 20 million literally in February 2020. And everything was going so well. It was beautiful. So tell us maybe about the COVID story. And so we went from literally making 20 million in revenue to zero within a week. We basically had one month to make a decision that will probably define the future of the company. Yeah, but what was it, like the secret? What, what did you do so well? We are going to be the best in the world in three things. And that's really what got us to be 100 million on the other side of COVID. For today's interview, we have invited Jean-Christophe Tenebucalo on the podcast. JC is a two-time CRO. His first CRO experience was at Fend, where he grew the company from zero to 20 million ARR in five years. His second one is a position he has now been occupying for a good six years as CRO at Travelperk. And wait until you've heard that story. Not only did he grow revenue from zero to 150 million in ARR in six years, but he did that while facing the COVID crisis in year three. But what you have to know is that Travelberg is a travel management software. So COVID for them meant literally starting from zero. Overnight business stopped. In this interview, we are unpacking Travelberg's story. You're going to hear how they went from zero to one in less than a year and how it's all about intuition, being focused on a narrow target and hustling hard. You're also going to get how they went from 1 to 20 million AR two years later and what their key principles were for this rapid growth. We'll talk about how suddenly they had to face the worst crisis ever and what managerial decisions they had to take that ultimately determined the future of Travel Perk. And lastly, you're going to hear about how grit, determination and discipline not only helped them survive the crisis, but also emerged stronger from it. Please enjoy from my conversation with JC. Well, first of all, JC, I'm super excited to have you on the show. So thanks for making some time for us. Um, maybe before we, we deep dive into your experience as a travel perk, can you maybe give like a short introduction about yourself? Who is JC? Maybe explain also a little bit about travel perk itself. And while you're at it, can you maybe also give like a picture of the, the sales context, the sales environment at travel perk in terms of deal size, sales cycle, so that we get like a, a contextual picture of it? Absolutely. Um... So I'm Jean-Christophe Short, uh, JC, because nobody actually called me really Jean-Christophe. <laughs> I even um, started with JC. Originally, I'm... Yeah, it Just feels natural. Uh, originally, I'm French. Uh, I actually lived in New Zealand for a very long time. Um, very long story why I ended up in New Zealand. Um, yeah. And I fell into SaaS before SaaS was even called SaaS. At the time, it was called ASP. That probably tell you how old I am. Um <laughs> And um, and I, I started my career more in product, then I went into marketing, and then I ended up in sales, but I ended up in sales almost through the kind of revenue statistical part of it, more than a kind of more traditional kind of sales background. Um, and I've had the immense chance to, especially in two companies, three, um, to scale an organization from zero to... Uh, firstly, an exit um, for Vend, which was a point of sale system that exited for half a billion to Lightspeed about two years ago. Um, started this company out of New Zealand. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then I was like, oh, I still have enough energy to do that all over again. So when I joined Travel Perk, there was no revenue, no salespeople. 
Uh, fast forward now, uh, one COVID later, we'll touch on it. Um, and six and a half years later, there is 1,300 people at Travel Perk, uh, 150 million in revenue. So it's a fantastic company. Wow. Um, and it has been a pretty amazing journey. Yeah, definitely. Can you maybe also explain Travel Perk? What, what does it do exactly? Absolutely. So Travel Perk does business travel management software. So it's basically your one-stop shop for any small, medium-sized company and some small enterprise that want to manage their business travel. Our, our core thesis is that in the same way that everybody has an HR system today, everybody has a CRM system, in 10 years from now, everybody will have a travel management system because it's much more efficient than trying to do it on your own or obviously trying to use a travel agency. So it's a kind of classic, there is a problem to be solved. We are solving it by software instead of solving it by people, which was typically what a travel agency will do. Um, and our target market will be company that will have anywhere between 200 to 5,000 employees. And our ACV is anywhere between 10K to about 500K. So we are like in the kind of big mid-market category. Right, right. All right, thanks. Well, I'm super excited to have you now on the show also because uh, Travel Perk has like done something, I mean, what I would call fascinating, but also kind of inspiring. I mean, I think that you guys, and, and I will let you explain that, but I mean, March 2020, the world kind of collapsed. It was... Yeah. We couldn't actually leave home, let alone travel. And so I can imagine that had that, like a huge impact, not only on the business, but also the employee, the leadership team, you know, everything surrounding Travel Perk. And so what's still super fascinating is that after COVID, in less than three years, you reached like 100 plus million ARR. And so you guys do something that's particularly interesting, inspiring, but also you, you do some things the right way. And so... I'm very curious to actually deep dive with you on, on yeah, tra Travel Perk's story and your experience there to kind of, yeah, uh, let the community learn from your experience there. So maybe it's good if you can start from, from the start, really, where you joined Travel Perk. I don't know what exactly that was, 2018, 2017, I don't know exactly. 20, 2017, 2017, I joined when, when basically there was a product and no revenue. There was about probably 40 people in the company, um, one marketing person, one kind of salesperson, uh, and everybody else was product and engineering. Um, what was the revenue so then? So there was back a really then? good concept. Was, was it none? Was the, was the revenue none. not existing? Like less than, yeah, there was, I think we were making a grandiose, like maybe 20K a month, something oh, okay. like this. Um, so yeah, below 1 million a year for sure, because it took us about a year to go from zero to 1 million, but we might have been at like, maybe like 200k or something like this. Wow. Okay. Well, take us from, from there. Take us with, with us on, on your journey. Like, you know, how did you grow it from there and then bring the COVID uh, story in it? Absolutely. So 2008. what's interesting with Travel Perk is that it's at the same time a very classic story but very compressed in time, like it's very by very big high, very big lows. So 2017 to 2018, it, it's, your, it's really your classic zero to one million journey. So there is a product, there is a problem to be solved. Now let's make sure we make revenue out of it. Um, what we did very well, so one thing to understand about Travel Perk is because of the nature of being a very horizontal product, you can almost target 
any company on the planet. Because almost any company in the world will have some form of business trouble. But they don't travel the same way. They don't travel to the same places. They don't have the same patterns. So the most important choice in the early days was who do you target? How do you narrow, narrow, narrow your ICP so that with a honestly less than great product at the beginning, let's face it, you can still go from zero to one million because yes, your product might not be ideal. It might have a ton of weaknesses, but it's great for this segment of the market. So at the beginning, it was obsessively narrow. I was like, if it's a US company, I don't want to hear about it. If it's an APAC company, I don't want to hear about it. If they have more than 300 employees, I also don't want to hear about it. So it was a very narrow market that allowed us to go from zero to one million. So, and at that moment, honestly, it's pure hustle. You do whatever it takes, processes will come later. You just need to get it done because if you don't hit one million within, in our case, a year, and for most companies, a year or a year and a half, the company doesn't exist anymore. So there will be a time and place for processes. Zero to one is not the time and place. It's like, just get it done. Get to one million, get to the next round of funding. Now we can talk. Right. Was it easy though to define the ICP summarily at the beginning? Because if you don't have the one million, do you really exactly know who the ideal client is? Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, and, and that's actually one thing that I think is quite important is the skill set from zero to now, like we are about 150 million AR, it's, it's very different. Zero to one million is a lot about your intuition. So you're going to have the intuition about, hey, I think this is where our product will resonate. You don't have enough. I, I, I sometimes see people trying to make analysis out of having 20 customers. No, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm initially a statistician. There is no representative sample with 20 customers. Just forget about it. Just call the customer and develop a thesis. Where is your product the most suitable? So we the first thing I did when I joined is, is so the chance I had is I have seen scale before. Like at, at Vend, uh, we were at 25, 30 million when I, when I left with 300 people in New York. So I have seen the scale. So I kind of knew what was coming after, but I also knew that at the beginning, the only thing I needed to find is, it's a little bit like the famous book, 1001 Fan. Like, okay, who will be my fans? Who will be the people that will actually really love my product? So I interviewed every single customer we had, which was 10 of them when I started. And I was like, okay, seems to resonate with this type of people. The people who have this type of characteristic with this type of persona seems to like our product. Let's try to find 50 more of them, not 500, because I didn't need 500. I only need 50 of them. Let's try. Can I find 50 of them to get me to 1 million? Then I'll anticipate the race after. Right. But that's interesting though, because how was the, the, the market also back then? Was it kind of crowded where you coming with really something totally new and you were kind of the first player in that market or, you know, what, what was the situation back then regarding competition? It's actually a fascinating question and, and we will touch on it actually, especially during COVID is like very often, there was a convergence of things happening on the market that make company like us finally possible. Um, it's not a travel podcast, so I will spare you why. 
It's like deep in the technical integration with airlines and hotels. So there were a couple of change, macro changes technically on the market that allowed a company like us to finally exist. Um, and so we were about 10 companies and we were not the most well-funded. We are actually one of the least well-funded out of the 10 companies that had the exact same concept that started between 2016 to 2017. 10 of them started all at the same place. And actually, most of them actually made it to the beginning of COVID. And we chat about COVID after um, with different approaches. Um, so it was a new concept, but it was starting to get quite natural. Like people were, because we had consumers that were educated on booking travel by themselves uh, on consumer platform, on Skyscanner and booking and so on. So the transition from consumer to business in terms of habit is quite natural. We have seen that for chat. Um, you know, we use Messenger on our consumer platform. So when Slack came, we were all used to using chat. So it was relatively natural. Here is the same movement. Um, you start by something you do in your consumer life and then you bring it to your business life. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, so that was 2017. Can you maybe yes, tell us 2017 about... 2017 to 2018. When, when did you reach that 1 million ARR then? Uh, about beginning of 2018. 2018. How does that change in terms of sales structure, sales organization, focus? Does there, you know, does a lot of change happens there? Or does it still stay in the same? Yes, it's the first moment you actually structure. Before that, you have basically people doing everything. They do SDR, they do sales executive, they do implementation, they do AM, and uh, uh, and they clean the office at night. Uh, like it's literally, you do whatever it takes. Exactly. You do product marketing. Okay, once we reach 1 million and because we could raise money, now we were on this trajectory on the 1 to 10 million. So then that's the moment you start putting structure. You recruit your first manager, you start decomposing the different functions. So SDR, sales executive, implementation, account management. You start putting experts in each of them. Um, probably one of the biggest tipping points is when you recruit your first, or in my case, my two first account managers. Because then suddenly your salespeople can actually focus on selling and your account manager focus on account managing. Right. Um, so that does literally, as soon as we pass 1 million and we raise money, uh, that was my absolute first recruitment in sales. Do you find it easy to find people that are a good fit with that hyper growth inside a company? Because I can imagine the people that you need at the very beginning where, you know, they can touch on everything. And then later on, having really focused people working on a very defined tasks and activities are two different types of profiles. So do you find it easier yes. to see those people evolve with the company or do you say, no, we actually have to find new people for that specific uh, development? As much as possible, we have, we have had beautiful success story of people who have been there at the beginning and have grew with a company and developed themselves. Equally, we have had people where you know, we left in really good terms. They are like, no, I mean, I just love the early days. And I'm like, great. Let me send you to uh, one other company of one of my friends that created this company. Absolutely go for it. If that's your passion, then don't stay somewhere. So I think for certain people, it was actually their opportunity to scale with the company. And for others, they sincerely like the, this beautiful chaos of the early days. And when things get a bit more structured, they don't feel that much at ease. And and that's okay as well. Uh, you know, they, one of my key 
mental model and intellectual framework is this concept of tour of duty, come from uh, Reed Hoffman, um, which my deal with any of the people in my team is you're going to be here. I want you to commit to being here for at least 18 months, 18 months to two years, and you're going to reach an objective for yourself. And I'm going to give you an objective for the company. It's going to be your tour of duty, come from the, uh, the US Army. It's like, and after two years, we will both sit down and hopefully you will have reached the objective of the company. You will have reached your personal objective. And then we can decide if we go on a new tour or not. And if there is nothing really interesting, then let's split ways and that's okay. Um, and, and that was always kind of my model with all of, especially the high potential. It was always trying to put them into this a year and a half, two year journey because high potential want to evolve. And so if right. after two years, they have nowhere to go, they're going to go frustrated and it's, there is no point keeping them in this case. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good one, actually. Defining an 18 months plan and actually see with them. And then at least you have them committed to that period, or at least as, yeah. as long as everything goes right. Um, still, I can imagine like if you have that hyper growth phase, like sometimes you cannot just imagine, you cannot just grab the fact that the company has grown so fast in that time frame that you know everything is changing or surrounding you. Um, and so I can imagine that as well for you guys, I mean the leadership team, as well as for the the yeah, the entire organization, that can mean like you know. We have to redefine ourselves every every oh, yes, half year. Absolutely. And so, I don't know. Maybe that also comes from the leadership team in the first place. Yes, and and this is actually it's a very it's a very good point. It's that is probably one of the reasons why Travel Perk has been so successful through the scaling phase and then through the crisis of COVID and going back up. Is we were four leaders, so. Uh, Avi and I were there since the beginning, but then uh, Ross, who is our formidable chief product officer, um, and Hugh, who just left recently to actually go back to an earlier stage company, but was there for four years, uh, that was taking care of finance and people team. The four of us were in the job together for four years. So we were this kind of continuum of stability at leadership level. And I think there is something to be said that if at leadership level, you have this continuum of stability, it's much easier to have it all the way down in the different functions. Mm. I love that, that level of stability. Maybe we'll touch on it when you tell us about the COVID story. But before we do that, so 2018, around 2018, you reached at 1 million ER. Then I yes. think, if I'm not mistaken, at 2020, you reached like the 20 million ER. Yeah. Uh, I was in about so two proud. years. You were so out. <laughs> you, I was, it was like, it was incredible. Like you go like one to 20, because you know, you know, it's the hardest one. Like the, the reality is once you're a SaaS company at 20 million, I'm not saying you're invincible, but you kind of made it, you know, then it's how far can you go after? Um, but, but, but you're safe. You're in a good shape. So we just reached the 20 million literally in February, 2020. Um, and everything was going so well. It was beautiful. And in retrospection, it what was, was like chaotic. The, the, yeah, but what was it, like the secret? What, what did you do so well to have that 20 million in less than, in, than two years? Like, what did you do? What, what happened? I, I think what we did very well is we have something at Travel Perk that is, I feel sometimes undervalued a lot in scale up. 
which is discipline. Uh, we found go-to-market, we found go-to-market motions that worked really well, and we just repeat them over and over and over and over again, and we were not getting ourselves distracted by anything else. So, for example, we knew we were not particularly good in branding. Uh, branding was not really our thing. I was like, okay, you know what? We're going to do no branding. It's okay. But we're going to be the best in the world in three things in go-to-market. We're going to be the best in the world in writing content, in organic search, that's for the top of the funnel, and in strategic partnership. Hi guys, I quickly want to let you know that we are doubling down on this podcast and by so doing, we are looking for the better revenue stories out there. So if you like what you hear, please give it a like or a follow. It is a simple click on a button, but that click would mean the world to us. All right, let's go back. That's it. This is the only thing we will do for top of the funnel and we're gonna, and once you decided that this is the only thing you do, you literally go and try to recruit the best people in the world that can do these three things. And, and it was the same for the rest of the function. Is like, we knew we could have gone to the enterprise market, but we are not strong enough. So we're like, oh, you know what? SMB and mean market is big enough. I'm just going to repeat and repeat. And we were working a lot in the processes. So what I mean by that is we will try to always iterate, how do I find better SDR? How do I train my SDR better so that when they become self-executive, they ramp up faster? So we were really working in the machine itself. Instead of trying to change things or go for the next shiny object, we will work in the boring detail about onboarding and recruitment processes and salary band and career pass, probably much sooner than most companies do because I was interested in like building the machine so that basically you put input in, it gets you output out. Um, I always tell Avi that for me, a, a great revenue function is a very boring one. Like it needs to be boring. It's like every month I can tell you within 2% where I will end up. Uh, not because I'm a magician, just because it's so predictable that I know where I will end up. Whether I'm on target or off target is a debate, but I know exactly why and I know where I end. That's interesting. That level of focus, that's kind of the key there. Yeah, absolutely. Level of focus yeah. and, and again, like discipline is important. People, people underestimate the value of discipline in startup. I think there is, to your point you were making before, I think the people who do startup and scale up tend to want to do that for risk and creativity. And it's, how to find these people who can have the creativity in the right place, but are okay to also have an incredible level of discipline where it needs to be. That's interesting. That's very well said. I like that. How do you then go and look at, at risk though? Because I can imagine that when you grow, especially also in a startup scale-up environment where you kind of have to define the new because you are like a new player with a new technology, like you have to take some risks. So how do you go yes. and, you know, take the right risk or, you know, have it under control somehow? How do you, how do you look at that? Um, so the, the approach we had on the risk is we let people actually take a lot of risk, but in a very small scale. So on a regular basis, we will have a couple of bets or risk that we'll accept to take. And it goes all the way from, for example, using a new tool 
to opening a new market. So we will be like, we will define very clear frameworks. Say, okay, you want to open this new market? Cool. Your thesis makes sense. I give you two people for one year. You, you will get zero help from anybody in the organization. So there is no cognitive load on the product team, on the finance right. team, and so on. It's like, and we accept that there is no expectation from it. It might work or it might not work. So we kind of create this like mini project within the organization. And when they work, we spread it. So I give you two examples, one that has worked very well and one that has not worked and we had to kill it. So we started our strategic partnership. So in our case, strategic partnership are partnership with expense management software and HR management software because they make sense in the stack. Initially, it started as an idea and we put one person to do that. And this person had an objective of top of the funnel and was like, hey, if you can give me this amount of pipeline within a year, then we will be able to convince product to create API and we can expand. It worked incredibly well. And now it's about 25 to 30% of the pipeline of the company. That's the good story. And there is a seven people team now. We actually try to launch a reseller program. So our idea was, hey, let's go to some small travel agency. Maybe they want to resell our product. We put somebody formidable on it. She's so good. But after one year, the thesis was just wrong. And after one year, we had no money to show. So we killed the product. And that's fine. Um, and, and that's okay. Because in order to strike gold, as we did in the first one, and have this incredible 30% of our pipeline, incredible CAC, you need to accept from time to time that you're going to launch new initiative. And after one year, you just need to not lie to yourself. You just need to kill it and that's it. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Just accepting that, that failure might be, part of, might be part of the story and that once in a while you will have like a successful story out of it. I like that. I like yeah, that approach. and it's okay. It's, I think the key point also is to not, having said that, to understand that they are bet. And the consequence is not a cognitive load on anybody because I feel sometimes there is almost like a, especially among leaders, because leaders in startup tend to be entrepreneurs. And so they always get excited about the next new shiny things. And, and, and that's not, no, no, you should get excited about making the onboarding a little bit better, not launching a reseller channel. I know it sounds weird because it's much more exciting to launch a reseller channel than to improve your onboarding. But in reality, it's better to do it the other way around. Yeah, no, totally. I totally get you. Uh, why do you think that people like that, you know, why do we as people like to always look for something new, like look for something creative, look for something that we can build? Like, is there, or is that just some people that are like that? And are you maybe not someone like that? Are you, I don't know. Why do we don't, don't like know. to do the boring work to the optimization of existing process? I don't know. I think it's, I, I think to your point, I think the, the problem is the people who tend to be in startup. Like I always found that, so one of my big theory is in the startup to, to go from zero to 1 million or even, even before the zero, like you need to be very intuitive and you need to be very good in the detail. Inversely, when you are at 200, 300 million plus, you need to be very high level and see the forest behind the trees in this in between stage, which is why it's so hard and you have so few people capable of doing it, 
you need to constantly zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, because you can't just stay there because there is too many things in the zoom in that are not defined yet, but you can't spend all your time in the zoom in as well because you're never going to be able to scale it. And, and the reality is there are very few leaders and execs who have this capacity to to be in this constant zooming out, zooming in. So you need to be able to say, hey, I'm going to write or, or read a plan about how we open the US market, super zoom out. But I also need to be able to listen to phone call because maybe the problem is we are not pitching properly. Uh, and you need to be able to like go from up to down and up to down. And and it's a very unusual skill set. And I think that's why you, that's why also Personally, I find it really hard to to recruit leaders externally to my organization during this phase. And I prefer to promote people internally because I know how to train them, but I find it very hard to find these people who can zoom in and zoom out like that. That's interesting. So tell us maybe about the COVID story. Like, I can imagine like my overnight there... Is there any business that can survive? I mean, what was that? It's, can you can you still can you still think of that situation where you saw it in the news in the media they were talking about lockdowns and you guys were like, "What the hell, lockdown?" Can you still I mean, re reimagine that situation where you you saw it for the first time? And what was that then for for you guys? You know, like, I mean, you know, like the famous series, like when, when there is a big event, everybody remember where they were, you know, during September <laughs> exactly. 2001, everybody. It's the same for me. Um, I, I, I remember it started in February because in February, initially, the virus was only out of China and we had the Mobile World Congress, which is a big event that we are partnering with. And Mobile World Congress started to see a couple of cancellations from mainly people coming out of Asia and because of the virus and we're like oh okay it's a bit annoying you know there is a slight decrease but to a certain extent we have seen that before it was not the first time in history that you had a localized virus that impact the transportation of people or goods so this was within the realm of what we could anticipate And I still remember March, beginning of March 2020, we, 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 we see that a lockdown is going to be coming. We don't know, like nobody else, how long it's going to be. And, and we have this final meeting in person before the lockdown in the exec team. Uh, and we have to decide a lot of things. Uh, we have to decide what do we do with our team. Um, so we decide to send everybody home even before there was quarantine, uh, which was actually really smart because that allowed us to set up everybody properly instead of waiting to get the quarantine. Um, so that was one. And more importantly, we're like, what do we do with our business? Because our entire business is about enabling people to meet in person. And so we went from literally making 20 million in revenue to zero within a week. And at that moment in March 2020, We have no idea if ever we will have revenue and we'll have a business again. And we have about 450 employees, about, I don't know, 30, 40 million in the bank, probably. So that gives us about a year and a half of runway with no revenue because 
runway gets much shorter when you have no revenue actually <laughs> uh, that's one of the things I, I can imagine when you it, it's basic mathematics but when you when, <laughs> when you lose your entire revenue the runway is much shorter um, when you only have cost um, and and so what we decided is to not rush the decision but at the same time we knew that we basically had one month to make a decision that will probably define the future of the company um, and that was the longest month of my life uh, like seriously it's, 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 it's yeah it's, I don't wish it to anybody it's, it's the longest month of my life no, I know I can imagine. And also when I look in retrospect to the COVID times and when the lockdown started, I feel like we over-exaggerated everything that was going on. Like we couldn't even yeah. go to the supermarket. It was that bad. So I can imagine yeah. for you guys, this could have felt like the end of of a beautiful story, of a beautiful, I mean, in two years you went to it, 20 million AR and then there, you, you just lose it all. I mean, that's how I can imagine it felt. But so how do you keep it there? It was, how do you keep morale for the leadership team for the employees because I think that back then you had like already about 400 employees if I'm not mistaken yeah 400 employees and so during this month there was a couple of very important decisions to make during this month of April and I think there are two reasons three reasons why we did so well during this period like we did 20 to 0 and then basically 0 to 100 two years later and there was there, there was three reasons the first one, the first reason is at that specific moment, contrary to some of our competitors, I touched on it, we were about 10 competitors at the time, we made the strategic bet, frankly, more than honestly rational decision, that we didn't know when, but business travel will come back and there will be no significant difference in the long term compared to how it was before. Again, that's very easy to say right now, but if you're in 2020, a lot of people were saying, world will never be the same. People will never go back to shopping. People will never go back to restaurant. They will never go back to traveling. We know now that this is not what has happened. Um, they will only do a virtual event. So we're hoping that's not really what happened. Uh, it's... That was the first bet. The first bet was the world is not going to change that much, so we're going to stay focused on business travel. It's a very important bet because a lot of our competitors decided to pivot completely their product. And by pivoting their product, they actually honestly went nowhere and ended up with a very bad product and basically most of them closed down uh, by the end of COVID. So that was bet number one. The bet number two that we made at that moment was for as long as we can we are going to do everything within our power to do no layoff so we use every single trigger we could so we reduce the salary we use help from the government um, as an exec team we reduce all our salary by 50 percent uh, we cut all the opex we could cut um, there was a concept of uh, what's in Spain is called ERTE, uh, what was called furlough in the UK, where you could basically get a lot of the functions subsidized partly by the government. So we, we did everything we could so that we didn't need to lay off people. That was our choice number two. We knew there will be an end to that. Like if it lasted for three years, we couldn't do it. 
But at least for a year, year and a half, we told people, if you want to be in this very difficult time with us, here is the time. Was we that also an, gave people an, a way out. Sorry. Was that an easy decision to make? Like the no layoffs? <laughs> no, it was horribly hard because now you look like genius, but you could look also like the most stupid, you know, leader on the planet. Uh, we had to convince our board because we were doing something that our board at the beginning, you know, we are very fortunate that they ended up supporting us, but our board was not super convinced at the beginning. They are like, no, I mean, I'm sorry, but you have no revenue. You can't keep the team. That's just not yeah, possible. Yeah. Cut and we're like, you no, we believe in it. We don't want to break the culture. We believe it's going to come back. And when it comes back, we're going to be stronger. Um, no, it was an incredibly... There was two scenarios that we had to prepare at the time. Um, and and we basically had one week to decide. And it, 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 it was... It was a horrible week because we had to prepare this scenario of layoff and we had to prepare this scenario of non-layoff. We had to defend it in front of our board and say, no, we think this is the right choice. And and that was honestly quite crazy in uh, April, end of April 2020. Um, it is crazy. So that was the sure. second part. And then the third part is, and I think this will probably, I hope, resonate with some companies that are going through a tough time at the moment, is we never stop growing and we never stop being aggressive. Hi guys, just wanted to invite you to block May 16, 2024 in your agenda for the We Are Sales conference. The number one reason why people didn't join last year is simply because they hadn't blocked the date. So I hope that by so doing, you can block it. Hope to see you there on May 16, 2024. All right, let's go back. So once we decided that we will fight and we will win this market, we adapted our technique, but we never gave up. So we realized, for example, relatively quickly that there were actually still people traveling, not the same type. So we realized that manufacturing, oil and gas, retail, they still, public sector, were still traveling because they were essential workers. And nobody was serving them because all the other travel agency and travel management provider were all in complete disarray. And we're like, okay, cool. We're going to acquire these customers. We're going to change all our go-to-market. We're going to change the way we target them. Um, and we're going to win this customer. And, and that was really our secret is at different layer, we never stop fighting. We're like, no, no, no. We, we had this, you know, uh, make lemonade out of lemons. It's like, it's tough. We're going to make it happen. It doesn't matter. We're going to make it happen. We are all here together. And I think that was really essential because nobody want to work for a sinking ship. People want to work for, you can bring people on the journey, even on the most difficult journey you can imagine. Even if objectively the company might not exist in two years, if you show them a path of success, if it's just a zombie company where you're just trying to stay half alive, the talented people are never going to stay. Yeah, I, totally. I totally agree with that. Nobody wants to work for a sinking ship, but people want to work for the for the underdog. They want to yeah. They want to be part of stories where you think, no, this this cannot work, but then you make it work. But still, how do you yeah, make exactly. that culture? That how do you keep the team motivated? How do you make them believe, feel, you know, what you feel, what you felt there? You know, how do you make sure that everybody everybody's still doing the work it's 
it takes so i think there are two things the first thing is before we we put all this structure of like reduce salary reduce time and so on we gave everybody the option to take two months of severance and leave the company with a recommendation so there was basically okay. a call to arms to people there was about i think 10 15 percent of the company that did it we are like hey there is no hard feeling we don't know if we'll be there in two years because it's completely outside of our control. It's not like we can do something about it. Like we cannot control a virus. Like it was not our point. So it was like, if you feel you need more stability and you're not ready for this fight, that's your moment to leave. That is your moment. And so the it allowed the people who decided not to leave at that moment to be like, I'm in it. I'm going to fight with the company until the very last second. So I think it helps because we weeded out anybody that didn't want this fight and i have no yeah, hard feeling for them i understand yeah but that maybe um, could have brought negative energy otherwise if they would have stayed exactly exactly and, and also it was really clear it was like you had your opportunity to take a nice package and leave you decided not to take it that means you kind of believe in it so i think that was the point number one and the point number two is constantly we try to reach a new objective So we knew that it couldn't be as high as the one we had before, but we were like, okay, we are at zero in GMV. Let's go back to 500K um, monthly. So let's go back to like 5 million annually. And we can't go back with the customer we had before because the customer we had before don't travel right now for most of them. So we had to find new customer who actually travel. Let's fight for it. We did actually a funny thing, which is during this period, we reset all the metric to zero as if March 2020 was the start of the company. So we, we removed from people the before. We are like, no, no, for as long as we are, no, we are not back where we used to be, forget this part. And it helped people to just, they were almost like creating a new company together. I was like, okay, it's like creating it from scratch again. Um, and it was actually quite, uh, was, quite yeah. fun. And the... The one thing that was very hard, though, is as a leader, you had moments of immense doubt, absolutely immense doubt, where you're like, am I doing the right thing? You know, maybe I'm bringing these people on this journey and that's going to go nowhere and that's terrible what I'm doing. You, shouldn't, you can never let that transpire to your team, ever. You can talk about it to your wife, to your friend, to your partner, to whoever you want. To your team, you're upbeat, You're fighting and you believe in it. Uh, you absolutely can never, in the midst of the crisis, you cannot be vulnerable. You can be after, and you should be, but in the midst of the crisis, you're the lighthouse. You're here to show the journey and you're here strong and you don't blunder. Right. Bring confidence to the team. Exactly. Man, I can imagine that's not easy to do. <laughs> no. Like you finish... But I had no wrinkle before COVID, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's what happened then. But also when <laughs> it comes to then, you know, redefining the go to bargain motions, to redefining the ICP, you know, how how did you kind of take that into hands? How do you make that happen? To be honest, it's actually very similar to the first question you asked me about the beginning. It was almost like going back to, okay, I cannot use any of the existing data Let's go back to asking why five times and looking at it as if we are literally creating the company. 
I'm like, okay, we literally, we took a report and was like, okay, who still travel? It was about 10% of normal travel volume. And we're like, okay, who is still traveling? Okay, these are the five industries that travel. All right, team, who love public sector now? <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's it. Um, and I think that was, yeah, that was basically like restarting the company. Same, same mental model, at least during the first year, 20 to 2021. From 2021, when it started to reopen, the playbook we apply was a little bit different. Yeah. When did you say the end of the tunnel? When, you know, the air travel industry was becoming, I mean, was getting alive again. Was Do you remember when that was exactly? The biggest tipping point was actually the start of vaccination. Because, again, our core thesis underlying was if people are allowed to travel, the world is not going to change that much. From the moment we started to see that vaccination works pretty well, and as a consequence, we had a way out. We didn't know if it will be one year, two years, or three years, but we will know that it will be within this realm. Then at that moment, we put the second gear of our project, and that's actually the one that got us to 100 million so fast, which is when it started to reaccelerate, all our competitors were still terrorized or they have lay off their entire company. So they couldn't rebound. We didn't lay off anybody. So the moment we saw the reacceleration and the reopening, we had everybody hungry to you win. You guys were ready. Yeah, for sure. And, and so then we went on a, on a spree to basically acquire customers through just normal sales motion, as well as uh, acquisition. And that's really what got us to be 100 million on the other side of COVID. Because it took all our competitors, and most of them now don't exist. There is only really two players anymore. Because all of them have laid off everybody. So even when it rebounded, they were too slow. They couldn't take advantage of it because they had to rebuild their entire team. It took them a year. And by the time they did that, they were out of the market. Uh, whereas we had people ready and we had people hungry. Exactly. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you have 400 people in a company that actually serve 20 million I mean, for, for an amount of 20 million, right? And then you go to zero and those people are still in the company, hungry as hell, want to make it happen. From the moment it clicks again, I can imagine that. Yeah. You guys go. <laughs> you don't stop. Exactly. And so Could you go back to past, um, past practices when it comes to go-to-market motions, when it comes to uh, the, the client base that you previously had that now you maybe have again? Could you... You know, go back to those times pre-post, I mean pre-COVID. That was actually probably the one thing that, in hindsight, we didn't do as well as we could. Um, is it actually took us? So that was end of 2022 in particular. It, when the rebound really was like full blown and business travel came back, it actually took us a little bit of time to adjust everything. We have changed so many things during COVID because we have different type of customer in a different way, both in customer care, account management, and go-to-market, that finding this hybrid model of the old and the new was actually a little bit hard. Um, it's uh, actually the, the rebound phase of the second half of 2022 is not something we are very well handled. Um, because actually, the re even if we were ready, 
the speed of the rebound surprised us as well. I mean, anybody who has tried to travel in 2022 probably have seen that. Like it was chaos everywhere. Chaos in airport, chaos in airline. And, and we are not at that level, but it was not our best year because we were, even we were surprised by how fast the rebound was. We didn't expect it. So I think it took us a bit of time. And then basically now in 2023 onwards, we have like, we still grow at, you know, almost 100% year on year where when your 150 million is pretty nice. Um, <laughs> and it's because we have mixed the old and the new. So we went back to acquiring some of our, you know, classic market of tech and consulting and so on. But we actually didn't lose track and we still have a lot of manufacturing and retail and oil and gas now, things we didn't have pre-COVID. So, but it took us a little bit of time to find the right go-to market, the consistency of brand to be able to serve these two markets properly. Yeah, that's maybe um, uh, also an interesting thing because uh, obviously you guys did some great, very great things because otherwise, I mean, th those numbers also, you know, give us a story of, of what excellence might look like in some way. Uh, but I'm sure that you guys have also made like a couple of mistakes along the way. Oh, yeah. So that was maybe one of the first that it could have been faster. But were there other things like that, you know, now in retrospect, you're like, mm, maybe we should have taken this a little bit differently. Yeah, we, we did a few of them. Um, we did a classic one is we scaled the US market before our product was fully ready to do it. So we scaled it super fast. The product was probably not at the level we thought it was for the US market. And it was the right decision to set up the team, but we should have waited a little bit to scale, to get really customer very happy before you accelerate. Um, it's a classic mistake, uh, but unfortunately we did it as well. It was not kind of like existential because we were big enough that we can recover from it, but we probably lost a few millions that honestly we didn't need to lose. Okay. Um, I think that that was one that I'm like, man, I, I, I probably could have seen this one before. That was pre-COVID then, right? No, that was actually, that was a little bit pre and a little bit post. So we started pre-COVID, setting up a little bit of a team there. That was very good. And then post-COVID, when it started to reopen, and actually the U.S. reopened before Europe, actually, because there was a lot of domestic travel in, in the U.S., we re-accelerated in the U.S. independently of COVID faster than what we could do internally. Um, and I think in, now it's fine, but in hindsight, we should have probably waited one more year before we put really like 70 people in the U.S. sales team. Uh, okay. We should have kept like five, 10 people to explore the market and to really develop the product before you add another 60 people and you really put the pedal on the accelerator. Ultimately, it was right. It was just not the most efficient way to get there. Yeah. Is there, I mean, do you think that you could have known that before actually making those moves? Could you actually, do you have to make the mistake to know it's a mistake or could you have say, no, maybe, maybe we should take another approach to it? I think in this case I could have done it because I I reflected back and at the same you know, if we have the time I did reflect back also on, on Venn was a formidable success but also why we didn't make it to the top 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 and here I think there was a couple of of factors that didn't help 
And there was one very simple factor that didn't help is we couldn't travel to the US at the time. And as a consequence, we were getting fed information in the middle that were maybe not optimal. So uh, there is a reason why also our business exists is because you get a lot of insight for catching up with people in person, being customer, being industry expert. And we didn't have that at the time. And as a consequence, we could kind of almost lie a bit to ourselves that it was better than we thought. So I think we could have avoided it uh, because I think the, the scale effect didn't need to go as fast. Um, and, and it's a good lesson for us now when we open new market to be probably a little bit more diligent in our approach of saying, okay, no, you go from step A to step B. And no, we will go to step C of acceleration if and only if step B is really finished. Right. Don't take shortcut. Like if your NPS is not at above 20, you cannot accelerate. Even if your go-to-market is really good, even if your customer acquisition is really good, if fundamentally your customer at the beginning are not happy enough, it is not the right time to scale yet. Yeah, maybe something we didn't mention enough, but I, I love the focus or, I mean, you put a lot of emphasis on it, uh, on the product quality, on the product itself yeah, and how it resonates with the customer. And I think that that's maybe also some kind of secret that you guys have had, like always reiterating on building a product that really resonates with the end customer. Absolutely. It's, um, I think it's also one thing that a lot of uh, startup scale up get wrong is the reason why you exist as a software company is you are here to develop a great solution and put it in the end of the customer. That's the only reason why you exist. You don't exist for your culture. You don't exist for your HR team. You don't exist for your finance team, for your marketing team, for your brand. You exist because there are a B2B company somewhere that is going to be happy to use your software. And so you need to make sure you develop a great software and you need to make sure this software end up in their hands. And, and this is something that we have always been very good at is knowing what is really the main thing. And the main thing is having this product in the end of people who are going to be happy using it. Everything else is peripheric to support this. So by no means, I'm not saying that marketing or sales or or finance or HR do not matter. They absolutely matter. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is that there is a traveler that can book a trip, go on their trip, and they're going to be happy. And and that is the main thing. The rest is peripheric. It is not the main thing. I love it. I love that customer centricity. That's for sure. Also, I believe I share. JC, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, for being on the show. Um, is there a way that we can help you? I mean, do you want to use this platform to maybe highlight uh, or shout out, you know, uh, job offers that you currently have? Or do you want to share anything that, you know, could be useful for you guys? Um, probably actually the, the one thing that we're useful is we are still hiring a lot of Basically, every function you can imagine in the sales team from SDR to sales executive to account manager, anything based typically in Barcelona, UK or Berlin or the US. So um, if you like the scale up, if you like the style of travel perk after this <laughs> interview, then uh, you are more than welcome to apply. Exactly, exactly. And I think they, I think the listeners get, get a lot from the culture as well. So that's for sure something they, uh, they can take on. Well, JC, thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. It was a pleasure to also hear from your story, from your experience at Travel Perk, how you guys made it happen to go from 
zero to hundred million ARR with even the COVID coming in between it. It's uh, I think it's super, super inspiring. And so thank you so much for openly sharing that story. Thank you so much, Dylan. That's it. We've once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next week with a fresh new episode.